comes from second chapter of Acts, verses 36 through 47. It can be found starting on page 910 in the Bible under your seat. So Acts 2, 36 through 47. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Steve, and I'm one of the elders here. I want to welcome you, and if it's your first time to, to join us, we want to say particularly to you, welcome, or glad that you have joined us in worship this morning. If you've been attending here for a while, and you have a regular parking spot, and it was covered up with a pile of snow uh, this morning, we look forward to welcoming you back to your parking spot in about six months. <laughs> On the way more occasions than I can really count, I've uh, been asked over the last two years since we moved back to the States after living abroad for almost 25 years, um, so, so what's that been like? And I, you know, rather than running through a whole laundry list of you know, all the cross, you know, reverse culture shock and all the adjustments, I usually just say something like, well, you know, we're still adjusting. But the last time that happened, it, it suddenly occurred to me that if you were to ask someone here that never left the U.S., you know, what it's like to, to live here, they might ex- respond exactly the same way. You know, like, I suppose we're still adjusting. <laughs> because the pace of social change seems like it has, uh, you know, has gathered to some kind of uh, unmanageable pace. You know, that is, things are changing so rapidly 
just in front of our in front of our eyes. It's hard to keep track with uh, with all that's happening. It's not just technology that leaves you know fifty somethings like me feeling incompetent in the face of a fifteen year old. I can live with that. But it's the pace of social change that's more difficult to to figure out. Much of the change is evident in public attitudes around sexuality and ethnicity and race, around gender and identity, around public civility and private morality. It's happening so quickly, it's, it's hard even to describe. But what's causing it? It's taken a while to kind of figure out as I move back into this culture, but there does seem to be an underlying cultural driver, something that kind of reminds me every day, much more than I'm, you know, than the fact that I'm not no longer surrounded by people who aren't white, that I'm no longer in Ethiopia. It's a particular kind of individualism, and it's driving change right across the, the, the political spectrum. For all the polarization in our politics, one thing, I think, runs across the, uh, the, the, the gamma of political ideologies from left to right, and that's the primacy of the individual. If you are a libertarian, then you assert strongly the right of individuals to be left alone, especially by the government. Traditional conservatives are suspicious of government, but insist on the necessity of government to protect and conserve individual freedoms, the freedom of individuals. Traditional liberals embrace the government as a good and seek to grow government in order to achieve the equality of rights of individuals. Now, on the emerging left, progressives and democratic socialists see government as key to progress toward the achievement of equal outcomes for individuals. As different as all of these positions are, all of them presuppose the primacy of the individual. That's so much the case that even the way that we use the word community has come to refer simply to individuals who happen to share some kind of trait or experience or common interest. We refer to the gay community or the gun rights community. These are actual groups of people, people who actually meet together, who know each other, who regularly come together for some, for some purpose and actual gatherings, something else altogether, simply a collection of individuals. We live in what has been called an age of expressive individualism. As one author puts it, expressive individualism is the idea that the purpose of life is to find one's deepest self and then express that to the world, even if doing so runs counter to whatever family or friends or political affiliations or previous generations or religious authorities might say. Find your deepest self, your true self, and express that to the world. The core value of expressive individualism is authenticity no longer is understood as personal integrity. Authenticity is, is something else altogether. It's, um, 
It's the idea that each individual not only has the right, but the responsibility to realize his or her own humanity. So the social and and cultural traditions with which you grew up, the religious identity into which you were born, the family to which you belong, they all have to be cast aside if they stand in the way of you becoming who you really are. Chances are, if you take your kids to a Disney movie, you will be unwittingly indoctrinating them in this philosophy. It's built into our cultural slogans. Do what you love. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. You do you. Or let it go. The central anthem of the Disney movie Frozen. That's kind of become a cultural phenomenon. Uh, the, the main character, Elsa, who, following the death of her parents in a storm at sea, something about Disney movies, most of the time the parents are either dead at the beginning or they die along the way. And there's a reason for that, because the parents constrain the quest to, for that inner discovery, who you really are, and the expression of that. Following the death of Elsa's parents, she can finally let go, literally take the gloves off, and be who she really is. Finally express her true self. This preoccupation with the individual is, of course, no accident. This country was founded on the premise that all people, every individual is created equal and is endowed with certain unalienable rights. Rights that, were, um, that would be infringed if power was concentrated too heavily in one person, like a king, or a religion, or a particular branch of government. So when the Constitution begins, we the people, the people is simply a collection of individuals. Our Constitution is actually quite reflective about who I am, who you are as you, what it means for me to be me, and says almost nothing about what it means for us to be us. Contrast that with a constitution of a country like like Ethiopia, which begins not with we the people, but with we the peoples. The assumption is not that government should be constructed in order to protect the equality and the freedom of individuals, but rather constructed to protect the equality and freedom of all the different, the 80-some different ethnic groups within the country. Or the assumption of many among the Chinese ruling class, that the role of government is not to preserve individual freedoms or even the freedom of particular groups, but rather freedom from chaos and from the cultural confusion that occurs when individuals and groups can simply say and do what they like. In both of those societies, as different as they are from from one another, the interests of the group or of the whole society are way more important than the interests or rights of the individual. In those kinds of society, the individual's importance is visible not through expressing himself or herself over against the wider group, but by the individual's contribution to the proper functioning of the group. Now, I mentioned all of those examples from other parts 
other parts of the world to highlight the reality that our individualism shapes us in ways that we don't even realize. And people in, in my generation can think, you know, it's just a bunch of millennials drunk on Disney trying to find themselves. It's, but that's not it. Our, my age group is just as, just as individualistic as, as, as young millennials. The Wall Street Journal, I was reading an essay about a man in his early 60s, and he was reflecting on his impending retirement. He said that the chief challenge was not figuring out what to do in retirement, but figuring out who to be. There's a point to what he was saying, but what he did was he turned to a French philosopher who advised that at the end of your life, not a time for giving back to society or joining a club or, or a group. Instead, this French philosopher advised that at retirement, you should withdraw into yourself, but first prepare yourself to welcome yourself there. At the conclusion of the essay, he rejected all the retirement advice that focused on how to fill your time after you stop working, you know, with golf and travel and charity work and all that sort of thing. And what he said was that instead, we should embrace idleness and solitude. This is just the retirement version of the very Western idea in which the the heroic narrative is about the solitary, self-sufficient, self-contained individual. It would be repulsive to all the Ethiopians that I know and to most of the people in human history. It's deeply attractive to us. The Bible looks at all of this and begs to differ. It's not that the worldview of the Bible negates the the individual, or neglects the individual. On the contrary, from the opening pages, every individual is endowed with with dignity because they're made in the image of God. They have value, and inherent value. In the closing pages of Scripture's anticipated day, when every individual will stand before God and give an account. For the most part, evangelicals have understood pretty clearly what the gospel means for us as, as individuals. But the Bible is also not, it's not interested only in the question, who am I? As an individual standing before God. It's also interested in the question of who are we? So when God creates human beings, the first thing that he says is that it's not good for them to be alike, and it's not good for them to be alone. And so he genders them, forming the basis for, uh, for families, and then tells them to, to multiply and spread out and, and fill the earth with a diversity of languages and peoples. When humanity rebels, their sin not only alienates them from God, but it alienates them from one another. When God sets out to restore humanity, he makes a promise to Abraham that he will create from him one family into which he will incorporate all the families of the earth. He then redeems that people from slavery and calls them into, into a covenant relationship with himself and within which they were to love him with all of their hearts, with all their minds, with all their soul, and within which they were to love one another as themselves. But when that people refuses to love him, 
refused to love one another, he declares that they, that people must die as punishment for their sin and that he would raise them again to be a new humanity, to be the people into which all the families of the earth could be incorporated them, to enable them to, to be this holy people, put them under a new covenant and grant them his spirit so that they could live according to the new covenant. But then something utterly unexpected happens in, along the storyline of the Bible. God himself takes on flesh. He takes their identity as a people into himself. He dies their death. And then he is raised to new life. And it's in his death and resurrection that he declares that that new covenant had been formed. He declares that all that had happened to him has happened to those who believe in him. They are in him, and by being in him, they are declared innocent. Just as he was. God's Spirit made him alive. Now they have been made alive just as he was. That's how we've come to be not just redeemed individuals. We've come to be a redeemed covenant people. And everywhere this message went, no matter what it cost them, no matter how socially unexpected or socially awkward it was, those who believed the message came together. They came together and they formed community. That's how the gospel answers this question, not just who am I, but who are we? The gospel calls us into community. The gospel creates community. It's a story that, explain, that, um, that explains what we see happening in the early chapters of Acts as this people, this new people, receive the Spirit. What do they do? They come together. They form community. And there are four things emphasized in Acts that we want also to emphasize here at, at Trinity as we think about the core practices by which we're going to put into practice the core value of, of community. First of all, we want to be together in life. In the text that we read this morning, it's of no small significance that the first thing that the believers did upon reasoning the Receiving the Spirit is that they begin to meet together, to share life together, to eat together. They were together in the temple. They were together in each other's homes. What I think is even more remarkable is what happened as the gospel moved out into the pagan world. As the gospel moves out into the pagan world, um, something really unprecedented in the first century happened. You see, there are all kinds of traveling preachers and philosophers. There are Epicureans and Stoics and Cynics and, you know, every kind of sophist and master of rhetoric. They would travel about and they would enter the amphitheater. It was kind of first century entertainment in the Greco-Roman world. Turn out to hear what the, the latest traveling preacher had to say. So these amphitheaters could hold tens of thousands of people. They all crowd together. They would hear these new ideas they would all be wildly entertained, um, and there were whole handbooks of rhetoric. How do you went about the task of persuading people, of public speaking? 
It was first century entertainment. Didn't have movies. What did you do? You go hear the traveling preacher. So when these Christian missionaries sh- showed up in town, it was altogether unexpected that they too would have a message. But they did something that no one had ever done before. For as long as they could stay, they stayed until a community was formed. They stayed until a church had been planted. They formed these new believers into communities. There's a reason for that that went straight to the heart of the gospel because the gospel told them that what God had done through the death and resurrection of Jesus was not just to save them as individuals, but to draw them into a new covenant, a covenant that defined their relationship not only with God, but with one another. A few months ago, we, we started talking about this idea of, of a community. I think it was JP that introduced this idea of the community as a kind of covenant relationship. And it's something that, that we have to keep talking about because at one level, given our sort of individualistic context, the idea of a covenant applied to church just seems like way too much. Like, I'm not marrying these people, it's just church. I mean, marriage as a covenant, that kind of makes sense, but, you know, bound together for life, but church? Really? It's entirely understandable. But the New Testament, and the book of Acts in particular, suggests that the church is much more than simply a provider of religious goods and services to individuals. It suggests that it's much more than, you know, religious goods and services which members consume until they find a church that provides those religious goods and services a little bit better, and then they go to that church. What we aim to be, rather, is a community of the new covenant. A community that represents the fulfillment of God's purposes for all of humanity. And through... And even though there, there are significant ways in which the new covenant differed from the, differs from the old covenant, the covenant established by, by Moses, still, when Jesus spoke about this new covenant, he spoke about the fundamental obligations summarized in the Mosaic covenant just as much as the, they are in the new covenant to love God and to love one another. In concrete terms, what does that mean for us? Well, three, three things come to mind. It means, first of all, we're, we're, we're in each other's homes. That's mentioned right here in the book of Acts. We share friendship. We share food. We come to, together around hospitality, fellowship, all of it focused by our love for the Lord. Secondly, we're, we're in each other's lives. We know what's going on with each other. We share each other's burdens and struggles and frustrations. We share each other's joys. We grieve with each other. When one rejoices, we rejoice with them. It means your children grow up and know adults other than their parents who love them and care about them and who are invested in them. It means when you're at your very youngest Still a toddler. Every Sunday there's a rhythm in your, in your life. There are people, old people, who know you, who love you, who care about you. 
when it means when you come to take your last breath, there are people with you who care about you, who love you, who pass on your legacy, who care about the wisdom that you bring to the community through your, your life experiences, who resist the cultural trend to cast the elderly aside and instead place them right at the heart of the community and say, these people matter. Not only are we in each other's lives, we're in each other's business. We're close enough, we're close enough to one another to wrong each other, so we'll have to learn how to forgive. We're close enough to one another to annoy each other, so we'll have to learn to be patient. We're close enough to one another to know each other's weaknesses, so we'll have to learn to be kind. We're close enough to ask one another how we're doing spiritually to help those who are struggling with sin and sickness and unemployment. We're close enough to one another to know when someone's marriage has gotten hard, to encourage and correct, to exhort and to rebuke. Michael read this morning from Hebrews, to stir up one another to love and good deeds. For that to happen, we've got to be close. We're together in life. But secondly, we're also together for growth. Not only was the early church together in life, but they were growing together. One of the important features of Acts is that periodically he includes these summary statements, just short statements that kind of step back from the action. It's a very fast-paced book. He steps back from the action and kind of summarizes at a, a kind of 30,000-foot level what, what's going on. One of the, what, what we see here at the end of chapter 2 is kind of one of those summary statements. But they're littered throughout the book of Acts. What we find in this first summary statement is they come together around the Word to teach and to be taught. They gather for prayer, for, for mutual encouragement. In the summary statement of chapter 9, we're told that across a wide region, the churches were being built up and growing in the fear of the Lord. And Luke then adds this striking note. What he says is that through the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, their numbers grew as well. The churches experience the nurture and corporate reverence for God. They grow in maturity and worship. And that sets the stage for numerical growth. But that's the job of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that does that. You see the same thing in, in chapter 2. With numbers being added that the Lord adds. That's a consistent pattern throughout the book. And in chapter, chapter 16, it says, that we're told that the churches were, were strengthened in faith and they were increasing in numbers every day. So God's people, in other words, engage in missions. They grow in community. They gather for worship. And the Lord adds to their number. All that's to simply emphasize that what we're talking about when we say together for growth is not, it's not really numerical growth. That's not really anything that we can do. Spiritual growth in community. When, when Scripture uses organic metaphors to describe this growth that's taking place in the, in the early church. It's, it's almost always to talk about the spiritual growth and nurture 
of a community. Now that comes as a bit of surprise because as you, you, know, you survey Christian literature, much of it really very good, much of it is focused on our growth as individuals. But notice very carefully, in Scripture, the growth of the individual is for the most part a byproduct of the growth of the community. It's a byproduct of the growth of the community. As elders, I don't know if this is surprising to you or not, but we literally never talk about how to increase numbers. And maybe you're thinking, well, you ought to talk about that sometime. <laughs> I look around, it's a little sparse, it's been a little sparse here, but it's not even really something that we're worried about. We know that, of course, we have financial needs, but the Lord knows that as well. In fact, just this week, you know, sort of the final numbers came in for, for last year. Um, it may be surprising to you to know that it was considerably over budget, the, the, income, for the income for the year. We'll have more to say about that at the family meeting next, next week. In other words, we're simply trusting the Lord to provide for our needs by moving in the hearts of his people. And that's what he's doing. Thank you for, do, for, for this overwhelming outflow of, of generosity. In the same way, the Lord will add numbers as he sees, as he sees fit. Let's not worry about the numbers. What we're focusing on as elders, what we want us to focus on as a church, is, is equipping the church for growth through teaching and, and relationships and community groups, going deeper together in our ability to live out the implications of the gospel. That's what we're really looking, looking for. So in the coming months, we'll be rolling out a kind of discipleship pathway. What, what we want is for people to be, to be clear, not only about you know, a, a path along which they can travel in order to be disciples, but how to walk alongside of others so that they can be disciples as well. Hugely important. So not only are we together for, in life and together for growth, but we're also together with difference. If the early church was growing spiritually and their numbers were increasing, Luke was also very, very clear about the fact that there was a problem. There was a significant threat to the health and growth of this uh, early community. Very early on, they realized that they had a race problem. They had an ethnic problem. God had made it clear from the outset that he wanted the church to be made up of peoples from all over the world. The gospel was to go to Judeans, but also to their arch enemies, the Samaritans. Not just to neighboring peoples, but to the very distant peoples at the ends of the earth, like the Ethiopians that we, the Ethiopian that we meet in chapter 8. But even before the gospel leaves Jerusalem, even before it gets out of Judea, a problem arises between Greek-speaking Jews who had come to faith and their Hebrew-speaking counterparts. We see this in chapter 6. The problem between those who were linguistically and perhaps in some measure culturally Greek, who were living there in, uh, in Jerusalem, and they felt like their widows were being overlooked in the distribution of, of money and uh, of help. But their widows were being overlooked. It was, because, it was as if 
they believed that those, their Hebrew-speaking counterparts within the church had blinders when it came to the, the culturally Greek-speaking um, widows within the church. But if that was a problem even before the gospel left Jerusalem, the problem became acute when it moved into the pagan world. It's just not, not just diff, cultural differences among Jews now, but differences that threatened the very nature of this new people. Influential voices were, were saying that those who were coming to faith from Gentile backgrounds, that they needed to become ethnically and culturally Jewish. They need to, to, to assimilate. But that's not what God intended. Even from the beginning, God had intended humanity to fill the earth, to spread out, creating languages and cultures and filling the earth with all this diversity. One human family made up of many families, all delighting in God and delighting in their diversity, delighting in loving one another, despite the differences, or even because of the differences. But the height of human rebellion at Babel, I don't know if you have noticed this, was rejection of this. We refuse to fill the earth. We'll stay in one place, thank you. We'll all speak the same language. We'll exalt ourselves against God by holding on to our sameness. Earliest stages, totalitarianism. Pentecost is sometimes, in, the, in Acts chapter 2, just before the passage that we read this morning, is sometimes called a reversal of Babel. But that's not it. It's a redemption of Babel. The miracle at Pentecost is, is that what happens, and what happens at Pentecost is not that everyone is suddenly able to understand one language. That's not what happens at, at, at Pentecost. The miracle is that people who had gathered in Jerusalem for this, this feast from all over the world and who came speaking all different kinds of languages, now they were able to hear the praises of God in their own languages. It was as if God was saying, this is what I intended from the very beginning. And so in chapter 15, when the church comes together to address the question of whether or not non-Jewish peoples had to become Jewish in order to become part of the people of God, the answer is a resounding no. Instead, the instructions that are sent out to, to all these non-Jewish believers in Jesus is that they were fully welcome into the people of God with all of their ethnic and cultural diversity. The only thing that was required of them was to turn away from pagan religion. That's what we want here at Trinity. We want to be a people that reflect the reality that within the one people of God, not just every person, but every people has a place. Every race, every ethnicity, every national, national identity. Even if one, because of demographics in the area where a local church exists, like Trinity, even if one cultural identity predominates, no cultural identity is dominant. where people new to church come in and are shocked to find that for all of the media focus on white evangelicals, 
That's not what they find here. And it's not just differences of cultural identity. We want Trinity to be a place where differences of all kinds are affirmed. Differences between men and women are affirmed, where men and women are equally valued. We want Trinity to be a place where older members are, are honored for their wisdom and their life experience, and the youngest are treasured as gifts from the Lord to our whole church. Not just as annoyances to be kept out of sight. We want Trinity to be a place where the weak in the eyes of the world, whether physically or socially or economically, that they are honored more than the strong. Where all spiritual gifts are honored. We want to come together with difference. That's God's vision. Finally, we want to be together for the good. Together for the good. The final thing that we see that we want I want us to pay attention to is we as elders want us to pay attention to in Acts to emphasize here at Trinity is that these believers came together for the good. See, as the as the new covenant community, they, they represented and displayed what it meant to be God's new humanity. Not only were they to be a people of peoples, bringing into the community the rich variety of human cultures and languages for the glory of God, they were to be a people among whom injustice had no place. Back in 2005, we were still living in Ethiopia, and we helped host one of uh, John Stott's last international ministry trips. I don't know if the name John Stott means anything to you, but British uh, evangelical provided leadership for the evangelical movement around the world for, for many years. And one of the last trips that he took outside of UK before he health uh, forced him to retire from public ministry was to Ethiopia. And we were having, we'd set up this series of lectures and then there were other things going on. And at one session, there was a, there was a Q&A. And I think over the time that we lived in Ethiopia, one of the things we constantly struggled with is how to respond to extreme poverty. It was in your face every day. And someone asked him a, a question along those lines. And, and his answer was, was classic stat, you know, succinct, to the point, he quoted two Old Testament passages, one from Deuteronomy 15.11, there will always be poor in the land, and one from Deuteronomy 15.4, there should be no poor among you. You can feel the tension between those two texts. They come from the same chapter. And he spoke of how as Christians we are always living between what is and what ought to be. Now, I think Luke is very much aware of those passages but for Luke, the community that Moses had anticipated, the community in which there, there should be no poor, from his point of view, that community had now come into existence. In chapter 4, Luke tells us that God's grace was so powerfully at work among them that there were no poor among them. Even when it meant selling possessions and properties so that everyone's needs were met, they did it. Within the covenant community, there must be no one whose financial needs are not met. There must be no poor among us. 
But of course, in the wider society, until Christ comes, there will always be poor. Of course, the wider society is not the community of the kingdom. But our vision as the community of the kingdom shapes our engagement with the world that is marred by brokenness and defaced by sin. Stain is on everything, and we see its dehumanizing effects. We see the dehumanizing effects of racism. We see the dehumanizing effects of under-resourced schools. We see the effects of mental illness and family breakdown, of addiction, of crime, of abuse. But as those who have glimpsed something of the glory and the goodness of God, as those who have glimpsed something of the kindness and mercy of God, as those who have seen something of the the beauty and the majesty of God, we bring those eyes to our wider world. We turn together to the world as people who love mercy who love justice, who love beauty. Some of the practical ways that we're trying to do this here at Trinity, of course, means coming alongside of those who in our midst from time to time have financial needs. But we're also making a priority of of mercy ministries. Hopefully you've noticed hearing more about that in recent uh, weeks and months. Several have been invited to serve in the role of deacon or deaconess and we, what we want to emphasize as elders is we're not, we haven't sort of appointed deacons and deaconesses because we can't be bothered. Or we have more important, things to, to, more important things to do. If you look at what happens in chapter 6 when people were appointed as, as servants or deacons in the, uh, in the church, that wasn't the reason at all. But like the leaders in Acts chapter 6, we're very conscious that it's too important for us to mess it up. Because we're trying to do too much. It's too important to allow our responsibilities in those other areas to distract from the, 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 the importance of caring for those in our midst and caring for those um, who are in need of the Lord's mercy and kindness, giving those ministries the attention they deserve. So we need, as Acts chapter 6 indicates, we need godly mature, spirit-filled people to give those ministries leadership. We want Trinity to be be a church in which work together, we come together to work for the good, both within the church and outside the walls of the church. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. That's the vision that Acts casts for us as a community of the new covenant. We're together in life. We're together for growth. We're together with difference. We're together for the good. May the Lord help us to become the community that the world around us, in its fragmentation, its polarization, in its, uh, in its experience of the decimating and devastating effects of expressive individualism, May he help us to be the community that the world is longing to see. Last week, JP 
mentioned that people today often need to belong before they believe. May we be a community to which people long to belong as they come to believe in the one who is making us to be his beautiful bride. Let's close with prayer. Father, these thoughts challenge us, and you know uh, how deeply individualism has seeped into our hearts so that what we, in principle value, we find so hard to pursue, so hard to, to live in community as, as you design and desire it. But we pray that you would drive the gospel so deeply into our collective heart that what comes out is vibrant flourishing community for the sake of your great name in this wider community we pray. Amen. Just stand with us as we sing this song. Sure.